Hi, and welcome to Paul Martin's Catholic Podcast. I'm Paul Martin. I used to be a Presbyterian, then Pentecostal, lay preacher. After studying the Bible and church history, I converted to Catholicism. And I'm talking today about the word faith movement, more commonly known as the prosperity gospel. The Reverend Ike, a popular preacher in the 1970s, said, I would rather ride in a Rolls Royce than to ride somebody's ass. And Benny Hinn's wife, Suzanne Hinn, ran around in a trance like she was demon-possessed and she said, you need a Holy Ghost enema right up your rear end. Who are these bizarre preachers that are often on television in the early hours of the morning? Who are these people? Are they God's anointed ones? Or are they a bunch of clever scam artists? In the late 1980s, one of the most popular televangelists was Jimmy Backer. And Jimmy Backer was doing very successfully, and then he was convicted of fraud. And with America's draconian law system, he was sentenced to 45 years in prison, which was a very, very harsh prison sentence. He got let out after about six years, but while he was in prison, he changed. He prayed hard to hear from God and he got nothing and he felt like he was going crazy and one night he had a dream where he met Jesus and Jesus told him in his dream that you did not preach the true gospel and Jesus told him that the true gospel he was to preach was to give hope and good news to the poor to the poor people and now today he does a lot to help the poor. And he spent many years helping the underprivileged and the poor at soup kitchens and places in the ghetto where it's really needed. It seems that the three biggest scandals involving these prosperity gospel preachers has to do with money, sex and power. Money, sex and power seem to be the three great temptations of the world. And I want you to imagine the following scenario, people. Imagine you're at the Mr. Universe contest and there's a dozen men who are well and truly ripped and muscly. They've spent years and years lifting weights, getting up at 5am every morning, running several kilometres, eating healthy, and living under this rigorous discipline for years and years. And at the contest, they announce, and the winner is, and the winner comes forward. And the winner of the Mr Universe contest is an obese couch potato, a guy who has never lifted weights and is lazy. 
Imagine how you would feel and how shocked and scandalous that would appear. But this is what I think of when I see and meet Pentecostal Christians who talk about these televangelists and say that they're God's anointed ones. I couldn't imagine a more undeserving and inappropriately named title for someone. The Christian church has real heroes, both Protestant and Catholic alike. There was Maximilian Colby, the Catholic priest who died in Auschwitz concentration camp because he took the place of another man who was going to be executed and saved his life and he was sentenced to death by starvation. There was Corrie ten Boom, an ageing spinster who was found guilty of hiding the Jews in the Netherlands during World War II and she was sent to Ravensbruck concentration camp. There was Richard Wormbrand who was tortured by the communists. And these are people that are worthy of respect. These are the kind of people that we as Christians should be imitating and emulating and reading and learning not these televangelist parasites who are in white suits living off morons with almost no money. So what is it all about, this prosperity gospel? What do they believe? What do they teach? And who do they harm? So the prosperity gospel has its origins from Pentecostalism. Modern Pentecostalism was started by Charles Fox Parham. He was a man who lived from 1873 to 1929 and in the early 1900s him and a group of his friends prayed for the gift of tongues and they ended up babbling in gibberish and they got some linguistic experts in to investigate and they couldn't find any evidence of them actually speaking a language, real or imagined. And Charles Fox Parham said that medicine and doctors should be shunned since we can expect all healing from God. His own son died uh, at the age of 16 from a sickness that was not treated and Param's other son died at the age of 37 and he himself died at the age of 55 and he was frequently sick. There was also a nine-year-old girl called Nettie Smith who died because her father was an avid supporter of Param and did not allow her to get the medical help she needed. And another Pentecostal fraudster at the time was a Scotsman from Australia who moved to Chicago and his name was Alexander Dowie. And Alexander Dowie taught that taking medicine was demonic and evil. And he was a mentor to John G. Lake and John G. Lake took his bizarre cultish Christianity to South Africa, where the Zion Christian movement, a pseudo-Christian 
religion was started and flourished there. Another charlatan was Catherine Kuhlman, who lived from 1907 to 1976. And she was a woman who had a television show in the 1970s. And there was a woman with cancer in the vertebrae and Catherine Kuhlman prayed for her healing. And she threw off her brace and followed Kuhlman's joyful command to run across the stage. And much to all the joy of Kuhlman and the audience, the next day her vertebrae collapsed and she died four months later. And this was reported in the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, November the 8th, 1970. And there was a man called William Nolan who contacted Catherine Kuhlman to find out about supposed healings and she gave him a list of 82 people but only 23 were interested in being interviewed and out of that 23 he couldn't find any real confirmations of healing. And these Pentecostal leaders had a great influence on the current uh, Word of Faith preachers who have started the Word Faith movement. The Word Faith movement, in a nutshell, basically believes that poverty is an evil spirit, that you can declare things into existence. So... They believe if you say, I am healed, you can be healed of cancer or any sickness. But if you say, I'm messed up or I'm, I'm screwed, I'm finished, you can bring curses on yourself. They're very superstitious. And they believe that sickness, sin, sorrows, suffering and financial problems are of Satan that God wants you all to be materially rich, physically healthy and successful in everything you do. So far, that sounds like a very positive and an optimistic kind of faith to have. Who doesn't want to be rich and healthy and successful in everything they do? Here's the problem. If you are poor or in bad health, it means you don't have enough faith or you've committed a sin or you've done some bad things. There's also no stable doctrine. It's pretty much anything goes because you let the Holy Spirit guide you or what they think is the Holy Spirit and pretty much you can say any bizarre thing that comes into your head. Benny Hinn in the 1980s said once that there were nine persons in the Trinity. He said that the Father, Son and Holy Spirit each has their own Father, Son and Holy Spirit. So he said there's nine of them. Apparently he retracted it, but... Even so, how can he claim to be inspired by the Holy Spirit to just mouth off some silly heresy and then, oh, sorry about that. He probably retracted it because he 
had shocked his audience and he didn't want to lose funds and contributions. Another thing is a tendency for violence. Smith Wigglesworth, a popular Pentecostal preacher of the early 20th century, used to punch and kick people because he said he was kicking and punching the devil. He'd do it to heal them, but he actually got people hospitalised. And in the early 2000s, up to around 2008, there was a so-called document... Uh, so-called revival documented called the Lakeland Florida outpouring in which Todd Bentley, this ex-criminal tattooed guy, would go around bashing and punching people thinking that the Holy Spirit had led him to do this. Here's what he says in his own words. What's happening? <laughs> That's because I want you to grab that lady's couple legs and bang them up and down on the platform like a baseball bat. I walked up and I grabbed her legs and I started going, Be healed! Be healed! I started banging them up and down on the platform. She got healed. And I'm thinking, God, why is not the power of God moving? He said, because you haven't kicked that woman in the face. And there's this older lady worshipping right in front of the platform. And the Holy Spirit spoke to me. The gift of faith came on me. He said, kick her in the face. With your biker boot. I inched closer and I went like this. Bam! And just as my boot made contact with her nose, she fell under the power of God. And the Holy Spirit spoke to me. The gift of faith came on me. He said, kick her in the face. With your biker boot. I inched closer and I went like this. Bam! And just as my boot made contact with her nose, she fell under the power of God. And I saw him and the gift of faith came on me. I said, what do I do, God? And God told me to just run him down. So I jumped up in the air and I went, bam! And I hit him to the ground, jumped onto him and got into a full mount. I grabbed him by the neck and started choking him. And I said, come out of him, devil! Come out of him, devil! And I said, another meeting one time, and I called out this Chinese gentleman. And all of a sudden, I went running down the aisle, and I, I hit this guy so hard, it drove him back several feet. He hit the ground, and his tooth popped right out of his mouth. The pastor was lying on the floor. I was standing up on the platform and I said, God, I want revival. And he said these words to me. Leg drop the pastor. And this is some of the insanity that is seen in this word faith movement. Committing violence, many of them also bark 
like dogs or meow like cats. I saw one video where a woman was saying that the Lord had told her she needed to howl like a wolf for the power of God to come upon her. The only instance in scripture where anyone behaved like an animal was when God cursed King Nebuchadnezzar and made him act and think like an animal as a judgment against him. Let that sink in. And in all my years as a Pentecostal, I found it very frustrating when I would try and say to to Pentecostals, but look at the lifestyles of these televangelists. They're a bunch of fraudsters. And I would get an instant knee-jerk reaction of, touch not my anointed one. You can't criticise God's anointed one. You'll be cursed. And I found that most of these people were unteachable. They feared getting deep and theological and they fear criticising these word faith scam artists. But even King David, we all agree that King David was God's anointed prophet. 2 Samuel chapter 16 verses 5 to 13 tells the story about when King David was a fugitive from Absalom, his son. And it says, when King David came to Bahurim, a man from the clan of Saul's family named Shimei, son of Gera, came out cursing him. He threw stones at David and his officers, although the king's men and warriors flanked the king on his right and on his left. Shimei said as he cursed, go away, go away, you bloodthirsty rogue. The Lord has brought down on your head all the blood of the family of Saul. You became king in his place, but God has now placed the kingdom in the hands of your son Absalom. Ruin has come upon you because you are a bloodthirsty man. Then Abishai, son of Zeruiah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and cut off his head. But the king said, Why should I listen to you, sons of Zeruiah? If the Lord has ordered him, curse David. Who can ask him, Why do you act like this? Then David said to Abishai and his officers, If my own son wants to kill me, how much more this Benjamite? Leave him alone and let him curse me, if the Lord has ordered him to do so, perhaps the Lord will look on my affliction and turn to good the curses heaped on me today. So David and his men went their way while Shimei followed on the hillside opposite him, continuing to curse as he threw stones and flung dust at him. So a king that was truly anointed by God, when he was being criticised and insulted, he did not retaliate, he did not call down curses. How much more should we examine these charlatans and what they stand for? So then what are the consequences of the prosperity gospel? And the answer is we have scandalous wealthy leaders 
unsound theology, and yet they're dearly loved by their theologically shallow followers, and it, but they're an object of mockery by the vast majority of people. I mentioned before that doctrinally anything goes, and I remember once many years ago reading a book by Tony Campolo. Tony Campolo is an evangelical Baptist author of many different books, and he, he wrote once about the difference between the USA and Latin America for poor people. Because he said um, the USA is a Protestant nation while Latin America is Catholic. And he said that the where Americans have the Protestant work ethic and an obsession with work, he said the people that are poor in America have looks of despair and emptiness on their faces. Because there are so many tele-evangelists saying that you ought to be rich and if you're poor it's because God has cursed you. But he said the poor people in Latin America have a certain joy, a certain happiness because they go to the Catholic Church and they're told blessed are the poor and God loves you regardless of your your financial wealth and they're taught by priests, nuns and monks who have renounced wealth and live in poverty and I remember sharing this point with a, a friend of mine he was a right-hand man to a well-known word of faith leader in Australia and this friend of mine all he could do was say, oh, well, Tony Campolo is a socialist. And I thought, well, what the hell does that even mean or prove? If that's what a socialist is, then I'd rather be a socialist. When I was a young boy, I was good friends with a family who loved the Lord. They went to a Pentecostal church. And sadly, the marriage fell apart. And years later, when he was in his late teens, this friend of mine visited our family. And after being there a few days and before he was going to go, my dad took aside the teenage friend of mine and said to him, you know, look, can I, I hope you don't mind. I just want to ask, where are you with God and church do you go to church these days what's happening and he said rather sadly to my and what I heard broke my heart he said to my dad look we don't go to church anymore he said after the divorce he said my dad and I started going to a Pentecostal church and when they found out that we were dirt poor and didn't have much money they didn't welcome us there anymore, so we stopped going. And it broke my heart to hear that. I thought to myself, what's the most important thing, saving a person's soul or getting money out of them? Although, unfortunately, a lot of prosperity gospel people think that you have to pay for your salvation. You have to pay tithes. 
I went to a Pentecostal church many years ago and I left burnt out because of the spiritual abuse that was going on in this dysfunctional church. But this church had over 500 people join this church in an eight-year period. And yet they never had more than 60 to 70 people there at any given time. In other words, they had lots and lots and lots of people join the church and then leave very shortly afterwards. To become a member of this church and to get baptised, you had to attend an eight-week course in which each week that you would attend there, there would be a lesson on Christianity. The first one was salvation. The next week it was about God, who God is, God is the Trinity, God is this and that. The third week it was about baptism. The next week it was about Christian living and a few other issues. And then on the final week, it was tithing. And a friend of mine, she was doing the classes and I went along to support her. And there was about a dozen people going to this course. There was about a dozen precious souls who were joining the church. They were people that would swear a lot. Most of them were smokers. A few of them had drug problems and other issues. Nearly all of them were from broken homes. Only one of them had a successful career and he was a real estate agent. All the rest of them were down and outs. And yet it was so beautiful and refreshing to see these rough and ready people ready to join the church. And when, the, when I'd arrived, the, you'd get a, a hug or a, a, a kiss on the cheek from the women. It was kind of, there was incredible warmth that you didn't find in the usual standoffish Pentecostal people. It was very, very refreshing. And when I came in for the eighth week, the last week before their membership, the topic was tithing, where you give 10% of your income to the church. And I thought, oh yeah, tithing. But you should have seen the looks on the faces of these precious souls. They had the looks on their face of a deer caught in headlights. They had a look of fear and stress. They were being told all of a sudden they had to pay 10% of their money to the church every single week. They looked kind of nervous. They didn't even know what tithing meant and it had to be explained. It's where you give 10% of your money to the church and they were, they looked stunned and the guy who was a real estate said to us well is that 10% of your net income or your gross income gross meaning the money you get before tax net was the money after tax and much to my incredible embarrassment we didn't know how to answer because the scripture doesn't 
say whether you give 10% of your gross income or your net income. And it kind of, he looked at us with incredible scepticism when we couldn't even answer that question. And I don't blame him for if he couldn't take us seriously after that. Well, it kind of, there was not much interaction after that. They just kind of sat all silently and said nothing. And then they left and went home after the meeting. And to the girl who was doing these meetings, I said to her, gee, that didn't go too well, did it? It was, went down like a lead balloon. And she sort of nodded, rolled her eyes and said to me, yeah, that's why we keep the tithing lesson to the very last. We don't want to scare them off. And I didn't think much more of that. The following Sunday, none of those new Christians were there at church. I thought, I didn't think much of it. I thought maybe they slept in or maybe they were away. The following week, nobody, none of them came. And after about three or four weeks, I thought, wait a minute, where did all those people go? They haven't been back since, they haven't been back since we talked about tithing. We'd scared them off. And that's one of the harms that the love of money does. Now, another problem, another con so what the consequences for this are, is it makes poor people feel bad and cursed by God. It leads to great disappointments for miracles that don't happen and medical disasters by thinking you are healed. I gave the example of Charles Fox Parham and how he died at the ripe old age of 53 and then Catherine Kuhlman uh, getting that woman to take off her brace for her vertebrae cancer and it collapsed the next day and that woman was dead within a few months. And Catherine Kuhlman would simply say, I don't heal people, the Holy Spirit does. But that was really just a convenient way of passing on the blame to the Holy Spirit. And because they believe you should say, I am healed, um, that can have serious consequences. If you've got a headache and you say, I am healed and start thinking positively, there can be the placebo effect where you start to feel better. But there are other issues that are very dangerous. There was a man on Facebook who was HIV positive and he said, I declare that I am healed of HIV. And I thought, oh, Houston, we have a problem. I messaged him and I said, but have you gone to a doctor to get that verified, to get tested? And his only blank stock reply was, I declare that I am healed of HIV. I know of one person who had gangrene in the toes 
when you've got gangrene in the toes, I won't say every minute counts, but every hour pretty much counts. You need to be rushed ASAP to the hospital to get them cut off. But this particular person wanted to pray for healing so they wouldn't even lose their toes. Well, they waited until the gangrene had gone past the knees and then ended up losing most of their legs and being in a wheelchair. And that is what I would say. That is a person who is a casualty of the word faith movement. And I know of one man who threw his glasses into the air and he said, I declare that I'm healed. And his glasses fell down, smashed. And he had to go and buy a new pair of glasses. Reinhard Bonnke was a man, he passed away in late 2019 from sicknesses, but he spent decades of his life, that German evangelist, word faith teacher, preaching all over Africa. And one time he was offered thousands of pairs of glasses to give to needy people in Africa who couldn't see properly. And he just scoffed at it and said, I don't, take, I don't put glasses on people, I take glasses off people. And the time I heard about this, our, my lecturer at the Pentecostal Bible College said that in the year 2000, said Reinhard Bonnke is now in his 60s and he wears glasses. So where's his supernatural ability to, to heal people of that. And it's dangerous because it leads people to despise those who are unhealthy and unsuccessful in life. Is that how Jesus wants us to be? Does Jesus want us to sit and judge people who are poor or unhealthy? Matthew chapter 11, verses 16 and 17, Jesus said, But what will I compare this generation to? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces who call to their companions and say, We played the flute for you and you didn't dance. We mourned for you and you didn't lament. It's often been said that faith healers don't visit hospitals for the same reason psychics don't win the lottery. And I notice that when Benny Hinn slays people in the spirit, that is, he knocks them with his coat and they fall over, the cameraman never falls over under their so-called anointing. The whole word faith movement, my friends, is nothing but a money-making pyramid scam. And they tap into the Christian Pentecostal market Basically, they get their, their fake version of God, their fake version of Jesus, and say, if you give money to me, God will bless you and make you rich just like me. And here's a disgraceful video of Jan Crouch, who is asking people to give even their grocery money. This was a, 
a woman worth tens of millions of dollars asking poor average people to give their grocery money to her. It's like it's always been the little women that caught the vision of giving, beginning with Jesus himself, out of their private means. Some of you little precious ones have that little grocery money, some of that little money set aside. Assure tonight the blessings of God on your family by giving it to God and speaking that. Say it, God, this is for blessings on my family. I love that. And that is just disgraceful. I loved a video I saw once on, actually it was TV, it was an interview with the Liberal Episcopalian Bishop John Shelby Spong. Now, while I don't condone the beliefs of John Spong, he said a very funny thing to his audience. He said that with these televangelists, you should turn the volume off and just observe their body language. And everyone in his audience laughed, which he meant to see how condescending they are. Probably one of the most disgraceful leaders was the Reverend Ike, who lived from 1935 to 2009. His real name was Frederick J. Iker and Cooter II. And he was a founder of the Prosperity Theology. And he started the United Church Science of Living Institute. And in the 1970s, he had an audience of two and a half million people and sermons on TV. And he bragged regularly about the 16 Rolls Royces he owned, his $1,000 suits and diamond rings he wore. He had a yearly income of $6 million to $15 million, primarily from donations and said he wanted large cash donations, and he did not appreciate the sound of loose change in the offering plate. And that comes from the Encyclopedia Britannica and the Chicago Defender, August 11, 2009 article, Prosperity Preacher, Reverend Ike, dead at 74. And these are some of the quotes that the Reverend Ike said. The Bible says Jesus rode on a borrowed ass, but I would rather ride in a Rolls Royce than to ride somebody's ass. And he'd often say to people, you need a check up from the neck up. He said, if it is difficult for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven, think how terrible it must be for a poor man to get in. He doesn't even have a bribe for the gatekeeper. He also said, I love money and money loves me. Money is God in action. You can't lose with the stuff I use. I am the master of money. I tell money what to do. And the Bible is the greatest book of self-image psychology ever written. I also remember in the 1990s, how Rodney Howard Brown 
was staying in hotels that were charging $1,000 a night. And I thought to myself, if you divide 1,000 by 50, you get 20. And I used to give $50 donations to the Voice of Martyrs. With a $50 donation to Sudan, they had this little package back then where you could provide a family in Sudan with two axes for chopping wood, a tinderbox for lighting fire, a water filter and a few other necessary tools to make their life a lot better. And $1,000 could have given a package like that to 20 families in Sudan. Instead, Rodney Howard Brown was getting people to pay him money so that he could get them to laugh and fall over and act insane or demonically possessed. I went to a Rodney Howard Brown rally in Melbourne in the early 2000s. I registered early and got a free ticket I got into the meeting, I caught up with a bunch of people from my church and we all sat in a row together and I prayed, Lord, if this laughing and falling over thing is of you, I want to receive it. If it's not, I won't. So when we stood up and he went and waved his magical hand over our line of people, everyone in the line fell over, except me. In fact, everywhere I saw people fell over, but I didn't. And Rodney Howard Brown and myself, our eyes met for a second and he sort of had a bit of a scowl on his face and then he continued with the next row of people. That leads us to ask the question then, well, what does the Bible teach? Does the Bible teach the prosperity gospel? Well, Matthew chapter 8 verse 17 says that Jesus took our infirmities and bore our diseases. Aha, that means we must never ever be sick and we must never ever have any emotional pain. Philippians chapter 4 verse 19 says, My God shall supply all your needs, therefore God will always make sure we're prosperous. And Luke chapter 6 verse 38 says, Give and it shall be given unto you. And 3 John verse 2 says, Beloved, I pray that in all things you may prosper and be healthy just as your soul prospers. And Jeremiah chapter 29 verse 11 says, The Lord says, I have plans to prosper you, to give you a future and hope. So if you read all these verses out of context, you go away with the impression that God wants you to be healthy, wealthy and successful. Well, my friends, I'm actually going to have a look at all these verses in their original context as well as some other verses that are ignored by the prosperity gospel. Philippians 4 verse 19 says, My God shall supply all your needs. Or the translation 
God himself will provide you with everything you need according to his riches and show you his generosity in Christ Jesus. Um, in any Bible passage, you have to read the context. So I'm going to read the verses leading up to this passage. Of Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 to 19. And this is a letter written specifically to the Philippians, and it says, I rejoice in the Lord because of your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me before, but you had no opportunity to show it. I do not say this because of being in want. I have learned to manage with what I have. I know what it is to be in want, and I know what it is to live in abundance. I have learnt the secret of being content in all situations, to be well fed or hungry, to have much or little. I can do all things in him who gives me strength. However, it was good of you to share in my trials. You Philippians are aware that when I left Macedonia in the early days of my preaching, the gospel, yours was the only church to share with me in giving and receiving. And when I was in Thessalonica more than once, you sent me what I needed. It is not your gift that I value, but rather the interest that is multiplying in your account. I have enough and more. I am fully provided now that I have received from Epaphroditus the offering that you sent, the fragrant offerings, the sacrifice that is pleasing and acceptable to God. God himself will provide you with everything you need according to his riches and show you his generosity in Christ Jesus. Glory to God our Father forever and ever. Amen. So what Paul the Apostle is saying is that God was going to bless and provide for the Philippians because they had been generous to him. And Paul the Apostle says that he's gone through times of prosperity and poverty. He's been well fed at times and hungry at other times. So Philippians 4.19 is not some magical verse that teaches that you'll be prosperous no matter what. 1 Timothy chapter 6 verses 3 to 10 says, Teach and urge these things. Whoever teaches in some other way, not following the sound teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ and true religious instruction, is conceited and understands nothing. This one is crazy about controversies and discussions which result in envy, insults, rivalries, evil distrust and constant arguments between people of depraved minds and far from the truth. For them, religion is merely for making money. In reality, religion is a treasure if we are content with what we have. We brought nothing into the world and we will leave it with nothing. Let us then be content with having food and clothing. Those who strive to be rich fall into temptations and snares. 
A lot of foolish and harmful ambitions plunge them into ruin and destruction. Indeed, the love of money is the root of every evil, and in their greed some have wandered away from the faith, bringing on themselves afflictions of every kind. And verse 11 says, But you, man of God, shun all this. Instead, pursue holiness, godliness, faith, love, patience, and gentleness. So it condemns severely in 1 Timothy 6 those who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. And this couldn't be more clearer in its severe condemnation of the prosperity gospel and their false teachings. And Jesus warned that it would be hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven in Matthew chapter 19, verses 16 to 30. It was then that a young man approached him and asked, Master, what good work must I do to receive eternal life? Jesus answered, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you want to enter eternal life, keep the commandments. The young man said, Which commandments? Jesus replied, Do not kill, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honour your father and mother, and love your neighbour as yourself. The young man said to him, I have kept all these commandments. What is still lacking? Jesus answered, If you wish to be perfect, go and sell all that you possess and give the money to the poor, and you will become the owner of a treasure in heaven. Then come back and follow me. On hearing this answer, the young man went away sad, for he was a man of great wealth. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, it will be hard for one who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Yes, believe me, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for the one who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. On hearing this, the disciples were astonished and said, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and answered, For human beings this is impossible, but for God all things are possible. Then Peter spoke up and said, You see, we have given up everything to follow you. What will be our lot? Jesus answered, Listen to my words at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his throne in glory. You who have followed me will yourselves sit on twelve thrones to rule the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, brothers, sisters, father, mother, children or property for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Many who are now first will be last, and many who are now last will be first. And this is what the scripture teaches. We're to store up for ourselves treasure in heaven, not treasure on earth. Luke chapter 6, I quoted, says... Luke chapter 6 verse 38 says, Give and it shall be given unto you. Tele-evangelists love to quote this verse because they say, Ah, see, it's a promise that we'll get lots of money. If you give money to a charlatan in a white suit, God will 
bless you a hundredfold. That passage is about forgiveness. It says, if you forgive, you'll be forgiven yourself. And Deuteronomy chapter 28, in its original context, offers prosperity and blessing if the Israelites were obedient to God and curses if they were disobedient. And I knew one brother in the Lord who read Deuteronomy 28 and he said, according to these blessings that are promised, we should be owning Rolls Royces. And I said to him, did they have Rolls Royces in the time of Deuteronomy? He said, no. I said, well, how could it possibly be promising Rolls Royces when they didn't even have them? See, this promise had to apply to the ancient Israelites, and God didn't bless them with Rolls Royces. He didn't even bless them with heating or air conditioning. They didn't have all those blessings that we have. At the turn of the 19th century, going into the 20th century, we can look back at that time and we can honestly say that poor people of today who live in the modern developed world have more comfort and convenience than kings and queens had back in the early 1900s. We have a heck of a lot more blessings and comfort and convenience than the ancient Israelites did. So if God was saying he blessed the ancient Israelites with blessings and their life was a lot tougher than it is for us today, it's incredible hubris for us to think that God is going to give us some great gluttonous comfort. And then we get to 3 John verse 2 that says, Beloved, I pray that in all things you may prosper and be healthy just as your soul prospers. Well, that's just a greeting at the start of a letter. It's like saying, have a nice day, and people build some great theology around it. Now we get to Jeremiah chapter 29 where God says, I have plans to prosper you and to give you peace. By the way, I've been mostly reading from the New Community Bible. Well, let's read the entire context. I remember talking to a Pentecostal man at a prayer group and we had to share our favourite Bible verse and he said his favourite Bible verse was Jeremiah 29.11 For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for peace for peace and not for disaster, plans to give you hope and a future, or as some translations say, to prosper you. And he was a blue-collar road worker who lived uh, with a lot of poverty, so he felt that this verse was some promise that he was going to become financially wealthy someday. But it was completely out of context, so... Let's read this scripture in its whole context. Jeremiah chapter 29, starting at verse 4 and reading to verse 
14 and let's see whether it applies to modern people in today's age or whether it was a specific promise to a specific time. Jeremiah 29 verse 4, The Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, says to all the exiles whom I deported from Jerusalem to Babylon, so that's who it's referring to, Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and beget children. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may beget children. Increase and multiply while you are there and do not decrease. Work for the welfare of the city to which I have sent you into exile. Intercede with the Lord on its behalf for its prosperity will be your prosperity. The Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, says, Do not be deceived by the prophets and diviners who are among you. Do not believe in their dreams, for they are prophesying lies to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. The Lord says this, When the 70 years of Babylon have been completed, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promises to you by bringing you back to this place. For I know what plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for peace and not for disaster, plans to give you hope and a future. When you call upon me and come and pray to me, I will listen to you. When you seek me, you will find me, and when you search for me with all your heart, I will let you find me, declares the Lord, and I will... Restore your fortunes and I will gather you from among all the nations and from all the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord, and bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. So if you're just going to randomly grab a verse of Jeremiah and claim that it applies to you, which is out of context, why not? grab another part of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 14, verses 11 and 12 says, Then the Lord said to me, Do not pray for the well-being of this people. If they fast, I will not listen to their cry. If they offer me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Instead, I will make an end of them by sword, famine and plague. How about we just live by that verse? It wouldn't be very healthy to do that. That's why you've got to read the scripture in its context. And I'm going to quote from a book in the Catholic Bible. It's called Ecclesiasticus. It means the church book or Sirach. It was a book in the early church and it's always been a scripture of the Catholic church in the Catholic Bible. And I believe that this book being missing in Protestant Bibles is actually a reason why so many people believe in the prosperity gospel. And in Sirach chapter 38 verses 1 to 15 it says, Give due honour to the physician or the doctor for you need him. And it was God himself who established him. Healing in fact comes from the most high. The gift of healing comes from the sovereign. The physician's expertise gives him prestige and wins for him the admiration of the powerful. The Lord created the medicinal herbs which grow on the earth 
and these a sensible person will not despise. Remember that he used a simple wooden rod to purify water, so that his power might be known to everyone. It is he who gives knowledge to men, so that he might be glorified in his mighty works. The physician uses it to heal and comfort, the pharmacist to make his mixtures. In that way the Lord's work never ceases, and well-being prevails on the earth. My son, when you are sick, do not be anxious. Pray to the Lord to heal you. Give up bad habits, keep your hands unsoiled, and purify your heart from all sin. Offer incense and a memorial gift of fine flour and rich offerings according to your means. Then consult the physician. Remember that he was established by the Lord, so do not disregard him, for you need him. There are cases when good health depends on physicians, for they too will pray to the Most High to grant them the grace to relieve and to heal in order to save life. May he who sins against his maker fall into the hands of the physician. So the scripture there says that we must trust in the Lord, but we must also get whatever help we can from physicians or doctors and that the medicinal herbs that grow on the earth, a sensible person will not despise them. God wants us to use medicine and rely on it. And then finally, we get to the main verse that's often quoted, is that Jesus died for our sins, our sicknesses and our sorrows. It's true that he did. Matthew chapter 8 verse 17 says he took our infirmities and bore our diseases. Despite that though, we still suffer from sins, sicknesses and sorrows. Now Pentecostals take this to mean, if they're in the word faith movement, to mean that you'll no longer be affected by sin, sickness or sorrows if you become a Christian. This is not true. In Romans chapter 7, verses 15 to 20, Paul the Apostle talks about his own struggle with sin and he says, the good things that I want to do, I don't do, and the bad things that I don't want to do, I do. And he says in verse 24, what a wretched man I am. So he was still suffering from sins, even when he was inspired by God to write scripture. And if someone inspired by God to write scripture suffered from sins, what makes you think that you will somehow magically escape from the effect of sin? We are not free from sickness. 1 Timothy chapter 5 verse 23, Paul the Apostle wrote to Timothy, a godly upright Christian leader, and he said, Do not drink 
only water, but take a little wine for the sake of your stomach and because of your frequent illness. He didn't say, name it and claim it, your healing. He told him, take a little wine for your frequent illnesses. Jesus may have died for our sorrows, but we still suffer sorrows for the time being. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 4 to 7. It says, So afflicted and worried was I when I wrote to you that I even shed tears. I did not intend to cause you pain, but rather to let you know of the immense love that I have for you. If anyone has caused me pain, he has hurt not me, but in some measure, I do not wish to exaggerate all of you. The punishment that he received from the majority is enough for him. Now you should rather forgive and comfort him, lest excessive sorrow discourage him. And in Acts 20 verses 18 to 21, he also talks about the sorrow he suffered. So we see that sin, sickness and sorrows don't magically disappear when you ask Jesus into your life. But they will disappear one day, completely. And that's in Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 to 7. And it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I saw the new Jerusalem coming, and I heard a voice saying, Look, God's home is among human beings. He will dwell with them, and they shall be his people and God himself will always be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death and no more mourning or crying or pain, for those old things have all passed away. The one seated on the throne said, See, I make all things new. So in a nutshell... We see that the word faith movement is made up of people, men and women, that have lots of money. They often have big followings. And that seems to be the reason why people think they're God's anointed one. But they have lives that are marked by massive self-indulgence, gluttony, scandal, disgrace. They have dubious miracles that are pretty much outright fraud. And the interesting thing about Jesus is nobody ever accused him of doing fraudulent miracles. They were undeniable. Uh, some of the Jews and people that opposed Jesus accused him of witchcraft, but that reflects the fact that they knew he was doing supernatural miracles. Why don't we see that with these faith healers? Instead, they make all these dubious claims to have done these miracles or they tell someone who relies on a neck brace to take it off and declare themselves healed and then suffer the consequences. And while we see these charlatans at the top of the food chain living with a lot of prosperity and power, we see they're, being, they're living this life because poor people are giving them donations giving their grocery money 
all in the hope that some imaginary deity, a false god that they believe in, is going to reward them for giving their hard-earned money to a charlatan. I tell you what, there is a true God and he will not reward you for being stupid. So my advice to all you lovely Christian people who want to be rich, you won't get rich by giving it away to false teachers with heretical and shallow, silly theology. I'm going to read an article from the Chicago Tribune. May the 29th, 2018, by Cleve R. Woodson, Jr. And it's called Televangelist with Free Planes Wants Followers to Pay for a $54 million Private Jet. If Jesus was to descend from heaven and physically set foot on 21st century earth, prosperity gospel televangelist Jesse DePlantis told his followers the Redeemer would probably pass on riding on the back of a donkey. He'd be on an airplane preaching the gospel all over the world. And DePlantis believes Jesus wouldn't exactly settle for 30 inches of legroom or getting patted down by TSA. Why, he would choose anything less than the Falcon 7X, a private jet that nears the sound barrier, but also has noise-limiting acoustic technology, a Bluetooth-enabled entertainment centre, and an optional in-flight shower. DePlantis says he needs roughly $54 million dollars to help him efficiently spread the gospel to as many people as possible, has asked the Lord and hundreds of thousands of hopefully deep-pocketed followers across the world for just such a plane. He's the latest aircraft-seeking preacher to draw raised eyebrows and outright condemnation from critics who say asking for a multi-million dollar luxury jet is not exactly what Jesus meant when he said store up for yourself treasures in heaven. But this is not the first time DePlantis has been enmeshed in the preacher private plane debate. The Falcon 7X would be his ministry's fourth jet all paid for with cash drummed up from followers. And before anyone asks, he already has an answer for non-believers and critics who want to know why exactly his ministry requires a luxury jet that would make his fleet the same size as Donald Trump's. We believe in God for a brand new Falcon 7X so we can go anywhere in the world one stop he told people on This Week with Jesse, a regular video broadcast on his website. The video on March 21st carefully mixed the gospel with a few insights into the economics of international aviation. Now, people say, can't you go with this one? He said, pointing to a picture of the plane he uses. Yes, but I can't go in one stop. And if I can do it one stop, I can fly it for a lot cheaper because I have my own fuel farm. And that's what's been a blessing of the Lord.
The planters didn't immediately return calls from the Washington Post seeking comment. And I'll end reading the article at that point. I'll just simply say that if you want to know about humility and poverty and God's miraculous signs and wonders, study the Catholic saints and what they've done throughout history in great poverty. Men like Maximilian Kolbe, who became world famous not by living in luxury, but by living in poverty. And Maximilian Kolbe was able to share Jesus with people in Japan and to get his newspaper to other parts of the world. And not through gluttonous, gratuitous greed. Thank you for listening. God bless you.